My friends, this evening I'd like to take you back uh, to what we saw this morning in that parable in Ezekiel. You'll remember that infant child having been born and having been cast into the open field was lying there in its blood, in its afterbirth, and in its, uh, in its uncared for state, unloved, unwanted, being cast forth like an aborted child today. But there came a time in that a child's life when God passed by and he said to that child, live, live. And that's now what we hope to consider this evening. Because our catechism asks us this question. Our catechism asks us this question, question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? So there's the question asking about the origin of faith. Where does this faith come from? And of course, faith has played a very large role in the previous uh, questions and answers. Recall that uh, it is by faith alone they are, that we are right with God. That faith is that grace which God enables us to, to exercise, which brings us into a saving union with Christ. And by being brought into that union, we have the very righteousness of Christ given to us so that we are justified. His perfect record becomes my record. By faith alone, we share in Christ and all his benefits, as the question has been given us. But now the answer, so answering this question, where then does that faith come from? And the answer given us is the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. Now, if I could just slightly amend the Catechism, very slightly, so that it would say something uh, like this, the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts, grows it, so I just want to slip those words in there, grows it, grows our faith by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. The Holy Spirit works it, he grows it, and he confirms it. Those three things that are in our catechism. And uh, actually, if you read the commentary of Ursinus on this catechism, you'll see he, he does something different. I, I mean, something uh, similar. <laughs> something similar to what, I, to what I did there. At any rate, so we come then to this question, my friends, about the origin of faith. And our catechism has given us the answer, the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts. Well, there's the answer then. Faith comes from the Holy Spirit, working that faith into our heart. I heard a preacher one time put it this way, and I think this is such a a, a solidly biblical way of putting it that I wanted to share this with you. He was talking actually about evangelism at the time. And he was saying that humans have a threefold problem. They have, and God provides a threefold solution. And I think this helps tie, tie together uh, many of the different pieces that we've been talking about in the Catechism. In the first place, our problem we have a bad heart. We have a bad heart. In the second place, we have a bad record. A bad record. If you went down to the courthouse, if you went to God's courthouse, and you looked at our record, if you pulled out our file, 
It would be a bad record. And finally, in the third place, a bad life. A bad heart, a bad record, and a bad life. Now, we have already talked about God's solution to the bad record. In a sense, we did it a little out of order, didn't we? The solution to a bad record is that God brings us a new record or a new righteousness. So if you drop down to God's solution, in that second blank there, you could put God provides us a new record. Now, the scripture term for that is righteousness. God brings us a new righteousness. It's a new record. Why? Because it's the record of Christ. It's his perfect obedience that he lived out on this earth. And again, I've asked you before, how many times did Jesus sin when he was on earth? Well, hopefully you'd be quick to answer zero. Never did he even even come close to sinning. His life was perfection from top to bottom, from in and without. His life was perfect, and that record God imputes to us when we put our trust in Jesus. So we have the second one filled out there, a new record, and we've already covered that, right, in the last three or four Uh, questions and answers in our catechism. But you can fill in the rest probably by yourself. God's solution is he gives us a new heart, a new record, and a new life. So God meets us at our point of need. We have a bad heart, God brings us a new heart. We have a bad record, God imputes to us a new record. We have a bad life, and that's coming yet in the catechism, God's going to say, God's going to show us a better way to live. He's going to give us a new life. Well, the the focus of the sermon then this morning is on this new record. This, I'm sorry, this new heart. This new heart. Now, in the in the language of theology, we are given the uh, term regeneration. Regeneration. This is a term probably that you heard in your Sunday school and catechism classes the subject of regeneration or the rebirth or a new birth, being born from above, the new creation. This is what our catechism means by the Holy Spirit, works it in our hearts. He works faith in our hearts. Now, how does he do that? Not by believing for us, right? Faith is our action. Faith is our putting our trust in Jesus but by giving us a new heart. Now, when we think, my friends, of of a a new heart, and think with me here carefully now, we, we don't just think, when we think about the psychology of a human person, we know that people act, right? They have actions. They do things. They make choices. They have a will. But there's also, deeper than that, something that guides that will. There is something that, there's an inclination in the heart of every human person that guides that will in a certain direction. The Bible has a word for that. Heart. Right? You know that when the Bible uses the word heart, it's not talking about your, your, the thing that pumps the blood, right? It's talking about that that thing in the, that, that direction of the psychology of a human person that is beneath and behind all human action and that directs human action in a certain direction. Perhaps we, we might use the term our nature. 
It's an inclination that we have. And I can illustrate this from the animal kingdom, right? That when you have, when you have ducks and they're born, assuming they're on land, what do they immediately begin to do? They look for water, right? It is within their nature to go for the water. When we, when we had a little farm at home, and my dad would buy a couple pigs, and he would put those in the back, in the back of the uh, barn, made a little pen for the pigs, and it was all grown up with, you know, weeds and shrubs and such. But the pigs would be back there, and in no time at all, there would be a mud hole back there. It was in the nature of the pig, wasn't it, to search out that mud, to search out the, I mean, that's how they are, right? Now, on the opposite, you have a cat, which when it gets its paw wet, right, children, you've seen how hard it'll shake its paw because it doesn't want that water on its paw, right? It's constantly licking itself, right? You think of the nature of a cat, how clean it always wants to be. It licks its fur constantly, right? And, 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 and which endears it, of course, as a house pet and the pig, right, rolling in the mud, right, pushing its snout into that mud and snorting and, and looking for stuff, right? And, and the pig is never happier than when it's covered in mud, right? They have a different nature, don't they? And in the same way, humans have a nature. We have an inclination. Now, in our catechism, we were taught about that nature. And uh, I'll just read this to you, because this is some time ago that we, we studied this. But we will remember that in question six, uh, we at, were asked this question, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer given us is, no, God created man good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. What was the nature of man as he was created? Well, it was directed to God to know him. In other words, we sat at God's feet and he taught us and we loved the truth that he gave us and we walked with him. We delighted in his commandments. We loved him with all our heart and we lived with him in happiness. This was our nature as we were created in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. But you know, my friends, that there was a sad fall into sin. And you remember our catechism then says, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? So it explained that. And then in question eight, it says, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the very simple and short answer is yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So there you have it, that we too have a nature, just like those ducks that right away look for the water, the pig that looks for the mud, and the cat that is always trying to clean itself and clean, clean, and clean, right? So humans have a nature. And the sad truth, my friends, is as we live in our current situation, our, our nature is inclined to sin. That means we are, we are, we are bent towards sin. That means that our, our, the deepest part of our heart takes delight in wickedness and in sin and in evil. That's not a nice message to hear, but it's the truth. And frankly, even if you never read the Bible in your life, if you look at the world, it's not hard to come to that conclusion, right? When we see all the, the, uh, the war and the destruction and the, and the murder and abuse that takes place in our society, we see a living picture 
a living, you might say, manifestation of the truth that is given us in the Word of God, that our nature is dreadfully sinful. Well, because of that, then, the Catechism is teaching us that man needs a new heart. He needs not just a a patch-up, a tweak here, a tweak there, like you might do to your computer if it's not working quite right. No, he needs a complete renovation from the inside out. That's why the Bible speaks, well, well, we'll talk about that shortly in our text, of a new heart. He needs that deepest part of himself, the thing that guides all his actions. He needs that completely transformed, or he's lost in sin. Now, I put Benjamin Franklin on, my, or on the outline there, because Benjamin Franklin is a good example of a man, and uh, how many of you have read his, his books, right, and how he talks about how he, had, he became quite concerned, especially in his younger days, of how undisciplined he was living. And he wanted to live better. And so he made all these resolutions, right, that he was going to rise at a certain time in the morning, that he was going to spend so much time on this. And in the evening, he was carefully going to review his actions to know what he had done wrong. Then he was going to start up the next morning and try to fix those actions. Here's a man, my friends, who tried to fix himself, isn't it? And he, he came, uh, he, he made many uh, laudable efforts in that regard, didn't he? He worked hard at it. He was a man of self-discipline and carefully kept track of each aspect of his character and tried, to, and tried his hardest to steer it in the right direction. But he is an example of a man who tried to self-help. He tried to fix himself. And that ended in sad failure. If you read about Ben Franklin's life in France, towards the end of his life, you'll realize that he was far from where he had begun. But now our our catechism speaks of being born again and the Spirit of God working faith in our hearts. But I would like to read with you what our canons of Dort. Our canons actually speak with greater specificity about this regeneration than our catechism does. So I would like to cross-reference us to that. I'm looking at head 3-4. You can turn in the back of your blue hymnal. If you turn in the back of the blue hymnal to head 3-4, And Article 11, that is on page 104 in the back of the blue hymnal, page 104, and we have Article 11 given us. Now again, this is part of our confessional statement that we confess as the truth in this church as the biblical doctrine. So let's read this then. In Article 11, page 104 in back of the blue hymnal. But when God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect or works in them true conversion, He not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them and powerfully illuminates their minds by his Holy Spirit that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy or by the power of the same regenerating spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of man. Again, a man and a woman. And and it's the inmost recesses, the heart of man. He opens the closed softens the hardened heart, circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which, though heretofore dead, he quickens or he makes alive from being evil, disobedient, and refractory or uh, stubborn. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. So this is the truth then, of what our catechism and here the canons, that 
it's not enough to do a patch-up job on us, that we need something, we need the Spirit of God to penetrate the inmost recesses of our personhood and to remake us and to give us a new heart. Now, so much for the catechism and the canons. Let's turn now to our text, and let's try to understand the teaching of the Word of God on this. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 23, 24, and 25, we read about Jesus doing miracles. And we read in verse 23 that many believed in his name. And at first, we might be encouraged by that. What a wonderful thing it is that these people believed in Jesus. But we're told in verse 24 that their believing, and again, we can kind of put it in quotes, was not a true saving faith. It was the kind of believing that did not save. It was a believing that was based on just the awe that they had when they saw Jesus do his miracles. And so we read in verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not, he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now the question then arises, well, what is the difference then between those people who truly savingly believe in Jesus Christ and those who don't? What makes the difference? Here we have this, this group of people. They heard Jesus preaching. They saw his miracles. We know that some of them believed the gospel. The disciples certainly did. But we're told about this group that, in a sense, believed, but didn't believe savingly. In other words, this belief did not result in their salvation. So now John, and again, remember, John as the editor of this, the author of this gospel, he's putting stories together not in chronological order, right? He's putting them in order to teach us something. And so he brings this story of Nicodemus, and he plunks it down there in chapter 3 to teach us something. He's not saying that this happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's saying, this story will answer that question. What made the difference between these people who believed savingly, and these people who believed, but not savingly. Well, now we have the story of Nicodemus. And the, the, uh, Jesus drives right to the heart of the issue. Nicodemus comes with his questions, but in verse 3, Jesus drives straight to the issue. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. In verse 4, Nicodemus continues his question. And he shows that he misunderstood what Jesus said. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? But he misunderstood. And actually, the, the, the misunderstanding is, is probably many of our misunderstandings. If you go back to verse 3, when it says, unless one is born again, the word there really is born from above. In fact, if you have a study Bible of some kind, I'm almost certain there will be some note to that effect, that the word again there, born again, should be understood as born from above. It kind of has a double meaning. Well, Nicodemus clearly understood it as born again because he says, how can a person be born again, right? He misunderstands that. Jesus says in verse 5, though, and here's the clarification. That's Nicodemus' misunderstanding. But Jesus' clarification comes in, in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
You see, Jesus understands, or at least he intended, that Nicodemus understand that born again means born by the Spirit of God. Not necessarily born again. Now, of course, it ends up being a born again, right? You were born physically once and you're born again spiritually. But Jesus means to say that unless a person has a rebirth brought on by the Spirit of God himself from above, he cannot see, and in verse 5, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And here's the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, verse 6. In other words, that which is born of a mother, we're born from our mothers and our fathers, we're born, we receive physical life from, from our mother. But a physical birth gives physical life. Right? A physical birth gives physical life. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, being reborn by the Holy Spirit, gives spiritual life. Our mothers gave us physical life. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life. And in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, and again, I, I really wish the translation had put born from above. Do not bar- marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying there's a deep mystery here. You don't understand how the Spirit works. What is the operation that the Spirit does? How does he give us this new heart? How does he give us this new birth? Well, Jesus says it's much like the wind. The wind comes and it blows. No one sees the wind. Children, have you ever seen the wind? Now, I know that you can see the effects of the wind. You see trees bending, and and you see leaves blowing, right? But you don't actually see the wind. And in the same way, the Spirit of God works a new birth. We see its effects. But we do not see the Spirit itself. We do not directly experience the rebirth. This was an error I was taught in my own youth, that that regeneration was something you would experience. No, it's not something you experience. The effects of it, the results of it, are certainly experienced. But the direct act of the Spirit of God upon your soul, making you into a new person, giving you that new birth, a new heart, right? that is something that is mysterious to us. We cannot explain how that happens, just as we cannot explain the wind. Now, my friends, why then are we told, I come in my third point here, born from above. Why born from above? Now, I... I guess I kind of already explained this. Verses 6 and 8. Oh, yeah, that's point 3. So I I did verses 6 and 8. So point 4, why a birth? We know that the Bible uses these metaphors, right? Now, why did the Bible choose this metaphor of birth? A new birth, a being born again. Even the word regeneration, right? To be generated means to be born. Regeneration. Why does the Spirit of God, through the author a John here, why does he want us to understand this part of our salvation as a birth? And again, it's important that when we, when we have these metaphors, these pictures, that we drive, that we see the, the, the truth of it, right? What is the reason for this metaphor? What is, the, what is the truth that God wants us to grasp from this metaphor? Well, I see two things, two things 
that we should understand from this birth. First, the completeness of it. That this new birth that we receive from the Spirit of God is something that completely renovates us as a person. It's a complete transformation. It transforms our mind, our will, our emotions. It transforms everything about us. It is a completely new birth. The, uh, the canons also made that clear, isn't it? And it, it gives all those, right? The heart is closed, but he opens it. The heart is hard, but he circumcises it. He infuses new qualities. He quickens it from being evil to disobedient, from stubborn to pliable and so forth. It's a complete. And the, the metaphor of birth is meant to teach us how complete, the extent of this new birth. Everything changes. And in the second place, dear friends, the metaphor of the birth teaches us that the God's act of regenerating us is a completely one-sided work of God on our soul. In it, we are completely passive. We do nothing. And again, the metaphor of a birth teaches us that. Let me just ask you this. I think I've asked this before in this congregation. What role did you play in your own birth? What role did you play in your own birth? And we all know the answer. We played no role. We were born. Right? But we didn't. We didn't ask to be born. We didn't raise our hand and say, okay, it's time to be born, right? You're just born. You're completely passive in it. And now in that, uh, in that, in that uh, respect, God's act when he regenerates a sinner is a completely one-sided act of God. He makes that sinner alive. So those two things, those two uh, truths that are taught us by this metaphor of a birth... Well, my friends, to bring this then to some application. Well, first, I, I, before I move to application, I trust you see, right, the, the connection between what the Catechism has said, right, that faith is worked in us by the Spirit of God. That's the origin of faith. The Spirit of God does an operation. He does heart surgery upon a sinner. And as a result of that surgery, as a result of that operation, a person comes to believe the gospel. Now, the first point of my uh, application is a theological point, something of a controversial point, and that is the relationship and especially the order between faith and regeneration. My friends, how is a person born again? If I said to you, would you like to be born again today? If you want to be born again, repent of your sins and believe the gospel, and God will give you the new birth. Now, as well meant as that might be, Right? Is that biblically accurate? Do we believe as a result of being born again? Or are we born again as a result of our believing? I I hope you can hear the difference, right? It's It's the relationship of cause and effect. Which causes the other? Now today we learned in our text that we cannot even see the kingdom of God unless we are born from above. And so we must say that the order is cause, regeneration. God, by the Spirit, regenerates us. He gives us a new birth, a new heart. And as a result of that, the effect follows, which is faith, repentance, and by the way, everything else in the Christian life. Love, kindness, honesty, and all the other fruits of the 
Spirit, right? That's what we're taught in Galatians. The fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit works these things. You might say these are all seeds that he plants in the human heart at the moment of regeneration. And so we reject the idea that faith comes before regeneration. Billy Graham, uh, a, 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 a good man, and please hear me tonight, a good man did unspeakable good in the world, no question about it. But on this point, he was clearly mistaken. Billy Graham wrote a book with the title, How to Be Born Again. You can find this book. I don't really recommend it to you, but at any rate, How to Be Born Again. How would you answer that question? Children and young people amongst us, how to be born again? If somebody asked you that, what would you say? How can I be born again? Well, you understand that when most people ask that question, they're really asking, how can I be saved, right? In which case you would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, right? But when we think theologically, when we think of the biblical terms, when we take this a little deeper, there's nothing you can do to be born again. Only God makes us born again. And in fact, even if we have a desire to repent and to believe and to love the Savior, all that is a result of a, of a new birth that has taken place previous. In fact, that's how we know we are born again. What kind of behavior does a born-again person show in his life? Well, he shows sorrow for sin, repentance. He shows faith in Christ, a love for the Savior. He loves the Word of God. He loves the people of God. He loves worship. This is what it means to be born again. Now, my friends, this is really a watershed or a dividing point between Arminian and Calvinist theology. Again, if I can throw these names around, if you're not familiar with these names, that's fine. But just so you understand the truth of this, this is the difference between the Arminian and the Calvinist position or the Reformed position on, on this question. In John chapter 2, we have people who believe the gospel and are saved. We have the same people, or sorry, we have different people who heard the same preaching, saw the same miracles. They also, in a sense, believed, but they were not saved. Now the question, the watershed, again, the dividing line between Arminian theology and Calvinist theology is, what made the difference? And my friends, I would urge you in your discussions and conversations with other Christians along these lines to ask this question, to put it forward. It's a perfectly fair question. What makes the difference? I have 50 people here. 40 of them come to faith in Christ, believe and are saved. 10 of them perhaps even think they believe and confess to believe, but they aren't really believers. What made the difference? Was it their choice? Was it their choice to be saved? This group over here made a sincere choice, but this group over here, they were not sincere in their choice. No, my friends. What made the difference was the grace of God. That in those people who believed savingly, God had done a work in their hearts before they came to believe the gospel. And as a result of that new birth, that change of heart, they came to believe savingly in Jesus Christ. And that made the difference. Now the Arminian theology teaches us that yes, God comes in his grace and he raises these people up. It's not that it's, they certainly don't believe that we're saved apart from grace. That, that they would say we're raised up, but God lifts up everybody who hears the gospel. He raises them up. That is the grace, sufficient grace, they call it. It's raised up like this, and then God waits. You might say he steps back to see who will really believe the gospel and who won't. 
And anyone in that group that believes the gospel, that hears the preaching, sees the miracles, and they believe the gospel and are saved, it's because they, you might say, pushed themselves over the top. They made the difference. They took that final step of faith. And that's why they're in heaven today. And that's why if they're not in heaven yet, they have a hope of heaven. My friends, we reject that theology out of hand. And again, do we reject it just because Luther taught us this or Calvin taught us this? Or I ask you tonight, using your own mind and your own discernment, is that the teaching of John chapter 3? And we really have to throw John chapter 2 in there too. A lot of people don't think about John chapter 3 in relation to those last verses of John chapter 2. The teaching of the word of God, my friends, is that God makes the difference. My second point of application is gratitude. My friends, salvation is no self-help program. Are you thankful for that tonight? People of God, does your heart break with gladness and gratitude? That God doesn't do, it's a deeply experiential thing. My friends, I ask you tonight, I would ask any Christian this, even if he professes to be Arminian, do you really believe that God brought you up this far? And that at the end of the day, you took that final step and saved yourself? Do you really believe that? Can you in your heart of hearts believe that? When you know your own sin and your own depravity, can you really confess that before God tonight? My friends, what hope would there be for us lost sinners if God did anything less than completely renovate us and give us a new heart and a new spirit? Again, I I know there's a theological controversy there, but isn't it also an experiential thing? How can you confess as a Christian? I don't know how you can. And I don't think you would. I don't even think an Arminian person would. Salvation is no self-help program. What a blessing. When we live our life, we live it in the Spirit of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. That is a mystery. I can't explain exactly how that works. But we know that without it, We were lost. Finally, my third application, prayer. I want to speak to mothers also tonight. Mothers, how many of you have lost children in infancy? How many of you lost children before they were even born? My wife and I have two such children. We don't forget them. What hope is there for their salvation? They can't possibly make a choice. Is there any hope for such children? Is there anything we can say to a weeping mother as she holds a miscarried child in her arms or a full-grown full child in her arms? Yes, there is. That God's salvation is a one-sided work of his grace. And so those infant children, we believe, are in glory today. Not because they chose to be saved, but because God chose to save them based on his covenant promises and mercy to parents who believe in the gospel. Benjamin Warfield, my friends, a theology professor at Princeton University, wrote an article once, and all you have to hear is the title. He entitled the article, Children in the Hands of the Arminians. You know what that article was about? What possibly could you say to a grieving mother and father if salvation were by our choice? All those children are lost. 
they're not lost, my friends. They're not lost. Because God's work, sometimes the word is used monergism, monergistic. In other words, single, mono, single. It's one-sided work of God's free and sovereign grace. And that's why we hope to see those children again in glory one day. I speak now to parents, last of all, who have children who are living in the world, who are living in sin. Maybe you don't even have their ear anymore. You can't even speak to them. Is it lost with those children? Have they sinned too much? Have they sinned it all away? Is there any hope for them? Yes. Because of God's one-sided work of grace. That God can come to the most wretched, to the most abandoned, debauched child, young person or older one. It's never too far for God to reach out. It's never too far. He or she is never too far gone. And that's why, my my friends, I entitled this last application prayer. And I hope we never cease praying for those people in our life. It seems like every family has one. Dear father, dear mother, don't despair. I know we despair. We think it's impossible. From our side, it is impossible. But my friends, I ask you this evening, is the Lord's hand shortened? Of course, I can't guarantee that prayer will bring such a child back. But I can say this, that as long as there's life and as long as there's a sovereign God in heaven, there's hope for that child. And so I call you to pray, my friends, and to pray for your children, to pray for any child, any person. Never give up praying. Why? Because we hold to this truth of regeneration. In one sense, my friends, this is the happiest truth that we hold to as Christians because it gives us so much hope. So much hope. Well, I leave it there. May God bless it to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice with joy unspeakable in this great truth of regeneration that our salvation depends not on us making a choice. We do make a choice but only as a result of you going before us and of working in our hearts, of breaking our hard heart and bringing us in repentance and faith to the Savior. Oh, what a happy truth this is, Lord. What a happy truth, Lord, for many parents who have seen children walk away from the faith, kicking aside everything they were taught from their youngest days. And we think what possible can happen to this child in their heart and in their life. Lord, we plead upon this doctrine, that by your one-sided work of free and sovereign grace, you would enter into the heart of lost children, lost young people, lost older ones, whatever age or sex they may be. Lord, we pray that you would come into their heart with your power, that you would change their heart and that you would bring them back to the truth, that they might come back to the Savior, that they would come back to the covenant of grace which preaches to them that they can have all their sins forgiven no matter how terrible they may be. They can all be forgiven them because of the blood, the cross, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, gladden our hearts to see prodigal sons and daughters returning to the faith. And Lord, we pray for those mothers who still nurse that grief in their hearts and those fathers of children who never saw the light of day. Oh God, how many children there must be in heaven even at this moment, rejoicing before the throne, never having seen the light of day. 
whisked away to heaven by your sovereign will. We weep on earth, O Lord, but they rejoice in heaven. Lord, here is a mystery that we can't fathom, but we believe it. All because of this glorious truth, Lord, of regeneration, of a new birth by the sovereign power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please bless us then as we go forth this day. Work in our hearts, Lord, and give us a spirit of true worship that we might rejoice in God our Savior all the day long. Lift up our hearts to you, O God, every day again. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn now in the red hymnal to number 391. We'll sing the four verses of 391. Come, O come, thou quickening spirit, God from all eternity. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of number 391 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.